Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Really pleased to say we've got a class act in the studio today. Howard Ward, CIO of Growth Equities for Cabelli Funds. Good morning to you, Howard. Morning, Jonathan. How much damage have we done? How long does it take to recover from something like this? We're up 3 4%, we're down 2%. Next day, same thing, following day, different. Last week, um, in about seven days, the S&P 500 erased uh, two and a quarter years of gains. Um, so the damage has been severe. We were down uh, on closing prices at, at the low, I think, 13% from the, the high of just 10 days or so ago. So significant damage. And typically, when you have that kind of damage, the market doesn't snap back. Now, if you have a fat finger flash crash, where it's not a function of deteriorating economic fundamentals, the market can snap right back. That's not the case here. We have a global healthcare crisis emerging, and people are resetting their expectations for growth and earnings, and uh, stocks are resetting as a result. So it takes a while to recover from the amount of technical damage the market has incurred, and I'm talking about a period of months. You're a good friend of this program, which means I'm in a privileged position to know what you're doing, where you're positioned. You haven't made a single trade, have you, over the last couple of weeks? No, I, 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 I haven't. Now, you know, the, the qualifier there is that uh, in our Gabelli growth and global growth funds, we have had a defensive uh, tilt on the portfolio now for two years. And uh, the good thing is for two years, actually, defensive growth stocks have generally outperformed. And during the <clears throat> crisis of the last two weeks, that outperformance has continued. So I haven't felt compelled to get more defensive because we were gaining ground during the during the decline. Mm -hmm. um, if I had not been defensive, then maybe I would have done something. But I literally haven't done a trade uh, for the last right. eight or nine days. So I, I don't know if I'm earning my keep or not. But uh, it's, you know. it's questionable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is Apple a defensive stock? Um, in the short run, Tom, I don't think it is. Uh, and that's because... You know, all of the big gains last year, which were at the peak about 100% year over year, uh, were driven by multiple expansion. And part of that was market related. And part of that was, part of that was in anticipation of a, a big new cycle of uh, 5G phones coming out in, in the third quarter or actually their fourth quarter uh, later this year. And of course, now you have the uh, multiples coming in a bit. And you have the earnings estimates coming down. Tim Cook has already come out and said they're not going to make their numbers. They're having supply chain disruption. Of course, they're somewhat uh, dependent, more dependent on China than many companies for parts and for, for uh, well, okay. assemblage. Why is it only 7% beneath its record high? I, I mean, you're talking to me about a stock down 15 or 20%, and we're not observing that. Yeah. In some, not just Apple, but other stocks as well. Yeah. Why are they holding in so well? Well, why? And I would argue, why is the overall market doing as well as it is? I don't think the overall market has yet come to the conclusion that the earnings estimates on the S and P this year are not going to be one hundred and seventy-five dollars, which was the expectation going in. They're not going to be one hundred and seventy-two dollars, which is where some analysts are right now. They're probably going to be one hundred and sixty-five dollars, which will be flat, and they might very well be negative. And it's when you have negative earnings growth in a period of. Uh, uh, widening credit spreads and higher global risks, that's when stocks take the most pain. And so I'm yeah. being willing to err on the side of conservatism here in my, in my comments right. to tell people that 
this market is going to we're going to have up days in this market like like we did yesterday but if earnings go negative we're going to new lows and it might even not even take negative earnings to take us to new lows. It's going to be a volatile market, right. and I think that the, the trend yeah. is, is going to be negative for a while. And uh, Lisa, the read of the morning with our question, John Plender with a substantial article in the FT just on that, the credit spreads and the challenges within the debt market and how they then fold into the equity market And as right well. now we're seeing spreads tighten. We're actually seeing people come into particularly riskier credit on this bet that the Fed will continue to lower rates and it will push money into riskier assets. Howard, though, I do wonder what will make you buy i want to see the uh news flow on the virus uh show that we're over the hump and that it is receding and i have no idea when that's going to be whether that is in a month two months three months four months I don't know, and neither does anybody else. And this is really important for those just waking up across America. Good morning, Boston, New York, uh, Washington, and of course, early, early mornings uh, at Bloomberg 960, the Bay Area. John, the major message today is, just as we've heard from viral experts, the viral news, the piece here, the piece there, the piece there, it's increased substantially this morning. But how it's nailed it, and you brought up Apple, we've adjusted the earnings estimates for what's happened <clears throat> in China. We haven't even started to do that for Europe. We haven't even started to look at what it means for the United States. And if I was looking at this market right now for the second half, the risk-reward profile needs to shift rapidly. If you move the E down a lot, a lot, then I imagine, Howard, you might be a little bit more constructive right now. Well, let me tell you what happened in the 2000-2002 dot-com bubble burst. Um, stocks declined, obviously, uh, s substantially, and, and a number of stocks, particularly technology kinds of stocks that we wanted to buy had declined uh, 20, 30, 40%. And we thought, what a great opportunity. Let's buy more. And we did. Only to, and, and at that point in time, in talking to the CEOs of those companies, they said business was great. It wasn't. They either didn't know or they weren't being honest or some combination of the above. Earnings estimates then got cut another 40% and the stocks went down with them. It was a horrible move to be too quick back into the market. Are you equating what we have right now to what you and I lived in 01? I'm thinking, I, I, I don't want to be too gloom and doom, but I think the potential is here for a drawn out period of estimate reductions because we just don't know. Now, having said that, when the smoke does start to clear, I think we'll have a strong recovery. So you don't want to, you, you don't want to take your eyes off this situation. With all this liquidity, with rates this slow, with the economy doing well, going you know through February, the economy was fine. But when the I want to wait until the smoke starts to clear, and at that point, then you really want to I think get more aggressive. But until then, because we don't know when then then is and from what level. Yeah. I'm preaching patience. Well, how about at this point? It sounds like you're waiting for more smoke. Never mind for it to clear. And I'm just wondering if you're waiting for more more revisions to earnings, where are you expecting them to be concentrated? Which sector right now, or is this broad-based on the S&P 500? Well, your more cyclical industries tend to be the ones that get hurt the most. And where is there the most pain today? Energy. You know, you're seeing that with the OPEC talking about cutting, cutting supply. The commodity-based businesses have high beta relative to economic growth. And so they're going to suffer. Materials, energy, and industrials are the three areas that tend to get hurt the most during this type of a weakening economy estimate reduction period. Howard Ward, CIO of Growth Equities for Cabelli Funds. Great to catch up with you this morning. 
Jeffrey Curry joins us now from London, of course, driving all of their commodity coverage as well. Jeffrey, I must have you uh, look at the headline. I'm not sure you've seen it. It's only been in the last minutes across the Bloomberg terminal. The Saudi oil minister, we will see tomorrow if the Russians are on board. Let's talk first principles. Why does OPEC and the Saudis need the Russians on board? Um because they need to have as large of a cut as possible. But we like to argue no matter what, it's too little, too late. The damage to demand, particularly in China, occurred three to four weeks ago, um, and now you have it materializing in the West. The total demand decline is somewhere around four to five million barrels per day at this point, potentially even larger. So cutting one and a half million barrels per day in April is really going to have no impact. So your downside risk is baked in. The question is, how can they normalize inventories over the course of the year? And they need the support from the Russians. Give us one example, and this goes back to the Jeff Curry microeconomics of decades ago. You're teaching microeconomics at Chicago years ago. Give us one example of how microeconomics adjust price. Give us one example where somebody takes a lower price in oil because of a lack of demand. I, I think the, the, the biggest margin of adjustment is going to be as inventories begin to fill uh, because of the fact that demand is far lower than supply, is does the build-in inventories overwhelm the ability of the system to accommodate those inventories? And we call that breaching inventory capacity. If that were to happen, you really open up the downside in oil, and we could see prices going sub-40 down into the low 30s. Wow. Our base case is we avoid that, and we end up with prices in the low 40s. Low 40s is still the base on case. On Brent, though. and that's on Brent. And yeah. this is on Brent from $51.41. Yeah. Jeff, so you, that's you, huge. Yeah, you got a lot more downside. I mean, let, let, let's remind you that hit to demand is on par with 0809, if not even larger in terms of the high frequency data. Um, you know, this is one of the biggest events we've ever seen in our lifetimes. You just shut down the second largest economy in the world. It's going to have ramifications. Jeff, the interesting part of this, though, is that other asset classes can look through the shock and price in a better second half. Just talk to to us about the difference between commodities, say, and equities as an asset class and why it's just a different story. Excellent question. Um, We like to argue that commodities are spot assets. The price has to clear today's supply and demand. In contrast, financial markets are anticipatory assets. They anticipate the future. Uh, Because remember, you take an equity, it's nothing other than the discounted sum of future earnings. And so they can price in the stimulus, the rate cut, and all of that. Commodities have to deal with the surplus today. So I like to say there's a tug of war between surplus and stimulus, and commodities in particular are caught in the middle of that tug of war. Jeff, how many bankruptcies are you expecting as a result of potentially $30 barrel oil? Um, you know, that I mean that's you know, if we got into that, that would it would damage the industry. But I like to point out the the oil patch was already in very poor financial health, even at fifty five, sixty dollars a barrel. Um, you know, that could be you know, you can see it in the equity indices um, that they have come down sharply. In fact, I think it was on either um, Friday or, or Monday, the yeah. equity energy industry hit an all time low. What does Exxon do? Yeah, I think Exxon is unique from the rest of them is that they're investing in conventional 
um, oil supplies um, on a forward basis. No other company is making large-scale investment like that. They're either doing, like in Europe, they're doing renewables and gas. Um, so if we look out forward, because of the environment right now and the poor financial health of the industry, we're going to see underinvestment when you get into 2021 and beyond. And so those who make investments right now are going to be well-positioned a year or so from now. Jeff, what's a Jeff Curry interview if we don't bring up gold? Let's talk about it. What's uh, happening? Some days we're down aggressively when I'd expect us to have a bid because it's risk-off and then we're down on gold and it doesn't make sense to me and people are talking about things like margin calls. What are the dynamics that are playing out in a gold market at the moment? Well, if you think about um, you know, when you have panic um, set in because of markets coming down, you need to raise cash to hit your margin calls. And the most winning position over the last year or so really has been being long gold and it was a at a very high level of length. So when you need to raise cash, you always go to your winners and sell them and that's why you get that initial knee-jerk reaction. But as we've demonstrated as you look further out, the longer the sell-off goes, the better gold begins to perform. And I like to argue gold is immune to um, to the virus right now. You know, populations can get it, but uh, gold is your currency of last resort. Uh, Your price target, Jeffrey, quickly here on gold. $1,800 an ounce, so lots of upside from here. Mr. Curry, thank you so much. Jeffrey Curry with Goldman Sachs this morning from our studios uh, in London. Lisa, I wrote an essay for LinkedIn, which is a great privilege to do that for Dan Roth and Victoria Taylor and the team over at LinkedIn. And, you know, I'm doing stuff like how, I mean, people ask me all the time, how do you do the reading? How do you know what not to read and all that? And I did this one on mathematics. And to make a long story short, it was that whole angst of you're out in the business world and you sort of remember doing your math like long ago and far away. And how do you get back in the math game gently? And it was a bunch of books and all that. And two-thirds of the way through the essay, I said, you have to read people who do math inherently in their work. And one of the best in the world is James Bianco. He is just brilliant of how he pulls in charts and does them. And usually it's in a semi, what's called a semi-log basis. I'm not going to go to the math right now. We don't do math on Thursday on Bloomberg Surveillance. But I was thrilled to mention Jim Bianco. His LinkedIn feed is outstanding. Jim Bianco, one of my absolute favorites, president and founder of Bianco Research, joining us now from Chicago. And Jim, I'm looking right now, we've been all watching two-year yields plunge to session lows, the lowest level since 2016, 0.5855 because Tom likes to break it out to four uh, places. And I'm looking right now at the warp screen on the Bloomberg Terminal, pricing in almost four rate cuts now uh, by the end of next January. Four from where we are now. Not Correct. including the two Correct. we just had. Okay. The implied rate, 0.298% by January 27th, 2021. And I'm trying to understand, Jim, how quickly do we get to zero? Maybe two weeks. Is, or it could be that quick. Right now, your warp screen, which is your world interest rate probability screen, is telling us that there's going to be a 50 basis point cut on March 18th. And that would take us down to five-eighths of a percent. Now, without getting too into the weeds, the Fed's got another problem that they didn't anticipate. As they announced that they're going to um, cut rates, and as the market expects they're going to cut rates, people that have their money in overnight uh, money like overnight repo or one-day maturity type of uh, commercial paper and stuff are saying those rates are going to fall. So I'm going to move out to three- and six-month paper to try and mitigate my reinvestment risk. I'll take that higher yield, uh, and I'll lock it away for three months. So what's happening is money or 
liquidity is being drained out of the banking system because it's leaving the banking system and going to longer securities. And that's why you're seeing this big jump in the amount of repo that the street is asking for. If the Fed wants to drag this out and just say, well, we'll, we'll cut 25 or 50 in March and maybe 25 or 50 in April, there'll be no money left in the banking system. Wait, this is, so, this is really important, Jim. Are you saying that the Fed needs to cut rates by 50 basis points on March 18th or else we are going to have a, a fundamental plumbing problem in the financial system? I'm going to go you one step further. We have a plumbing problem in the financial system right now. Uh, and it is being covered by the Fed's new facility that they've put in place. But the street, Wall Street, is asking for more assistance than the caps that the Fed has put on it. Today, they said that they would offer $20 billion of what's called 14-day term repo. The street asked for $70 billion of assistance, and they only got 20 in help right now. So <clears throat> the reason is... All that money is leaving because it knows those rates are going to go down, and it's going to longer-term securities. And if the Fed is going to drag their feet in cutting rates, well, we'll cut 25 this meeting, right. 25 next meeting, this is going to create a bigger plumbing problem. So if you're ultimately thinking about going to zero by the right. second half of this year, do it in two weeks. Well, just because of time limitations today, Jim Bianco, and this is so important, do you find an efficacy in alternatives to rate cuts or is rate cuts the blunt instrument that only works? Well, rate cuts is the blunt instrument that they work. The only other instrument that they have that they could use at this point would be to expand their balance sheet, which is what we now know as QE. I wouldn't say traditional QE. I guess that's what it's become now. It's more traditional. I don't think negative interest rates or any of those other things would be very effective. In fact, those would be very counterproductive um, at this point. So the Fed's got kind of uh, two targets that they're looking at. They're looking at what this virus means, what we're fearing it means for the economy in two, three, or four weeks, widespread shutdown, disruption, and the fact that they are cutting rates, that act is creating a plumbing problem on top of everything else. Plumbing problems being handled for now, but just for now. It doesn't mean that yeah. they've got it permanently solved. Jim Bianco, thank you so much. Too short a visit. We look for a much longer visit next time. Mr. Bianco uh, in uh, Chicago. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Right now, the banker who is an engineer, Jean-Claude Trichet, joins us. He's a former president of the European Central Bank, and we are thrilled, Mr. Trichet, you could be with us today. I want you to take your engineering and the dynamics that you know cold, and that is the new discussion of supply shifting worldwide and demand shifting worldwide. Which are you more concerned about, the supply shocks or the demand shocks to come? Well, uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you, Tom. I would say that the problem is that we have both the supply shock and the demand shock. At the very beginning, one could have said perhaps it is only a supply shock. We can do nothing as regards the central banks, of course, as regards the supply shock. And, and then let's wait for the coronavirus to be, to be, uh, to be eliminated. And, and then we have a V-shaped recovery. Uh, unfortunately, we see now, taking into account globalization, the supply chain at a global level, and all the consequences of the fear that is accompanying uh, this epidemic or this pandemic, we see that there, there is a demand shock also, and we have both together at the global level. 
And this, of course, is something which calls for uh, appropriate decisions, not only by central banks, of course, but by all partners, without exception. And I, if I may, uh, Tom, I am a little bit uh, annoyed that we hear a lot from the G7, from the industrialized country. We, I heard nothing from the G20. And uh, we have clearly a global issue, a global problems, with a lot of emerging countries being uh, at the heart of the problem, including, of course, China. So it seems to me that it has to be taken up at the global okay, level, well, and I'm not gonna, only okay. at the level of the G7. President Trichet, I'm going to rip up the script here, and I do this with great respect for Chairman Powell and Christine Lagarde. With your criticism of a need for a global action, should we have seen a coordinated response with Chairman Powell the other day. Did they miss a moment by not linking together their actions? Well, uh, you know that I have experienced myself a coordinated action with a 50 basis point diminishing on October uh, 2008, after Lehman Brothers. I have to say, at the time, the, the drama was unfolding in a much worse uh, manner, if I may. So the idea that we had uh, absolute necessity to coordinate action at the level of the major central banks uh, was something very natural. I'm not sure that it was really more appropriate in this time. It could have also had a, an impact of panicking, if I may, or giving the message of uh, too much of a panic. So I think uh, yep. It's okay. What has been done is okay. I don't regret the uh, coordination action. Mm. Jean-Claude Trichet, one of the arguments that you could put forward as to why there wasn't coordinated action is that other central bankers think that cutting rates is a mistake. Could that be the case? Well, again, uh, each central bank has its own responsibility in its own law and legislation or treaty. So I think that there is no general rule to apply to everybody. That's one of the problems of, uh, I would say, governance in Europe as well as in the world. It is that uh, the, the recommendations are not the same for all. At this stage, I would say the main problem, it seems to me, is really to make liquidity available to all, credit available to all, and the amount, the, I would say, the supply of liquidity, supply of credit, is more important than the price. Uh, that the interest rate uh, themselves. But that depends, of course, on the various uh, economies and countries concerned. Uh, in Europe, as you know, we have introduced the idea of giving liquidity, giving su supply of liquidity without any limit. And that is still the case. It was introduced at the moment of the Lehman Brothers crisis, but it is still the case. Uh, but, of course, uh, availability of credit uh, remains something which is and will yep. be much more important in the present period. Do you think, therefore, the ECB would be better to do more teltros, to try and some, find some way of getting credit into the supply chains? Andrew Bailey was just talking about that, rather than cutting rates. Do you think that the more teltros, more kind of liquidity injections into the banking sector, that would be a better way to go for the ECB rather than cutting another 10 bips off the depot rate? I have no recommendation to make to the ECB. The Governing Council has taken extremely wise decisions uh, since, uh, <laughs> since the crisis. So I have full confidence on the fact that they will do what is appropriate in, in the case. But it's clear that availability of credit 
will be something absolutely essential all over the, the euro area, whatever the level of uh, interest rate is. One of the great debates, Mr. Trichet, that we're seeing right now is the idea of disinflation or following on a greater inflation. Which way will price change cut? Do you anticipate dampened economic growth in disinflation, or can you worry about an inflation from another time and place? Well, it's again, it is the complexity of the situation which is uh, illustrated by the fact that uh, the supply shock itself could uh, transmit some kind of inflationary pressure. At the same time, the demand shock, uh, which is the consequence of coronavirus, has exactly the, rever the opposite consequence. So we, we will see exactly where we stand. It's a very complicated story. But it's clear that the supply shock element has an inflationary potential. Uh, Eurozone five-year, five years, currently sitting at 1.1%, uh, at a little low uh, for the last five years. Jean-Claude Trichet, the former ECB president, he is going to stay with us. Coming up later today, our exclusive interview with Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. That conversation coming up at 5.30pm in New York. That's 10.30pm in London. This is Bloomberg.
Guy Johnson in London, Tom Keane, of course, over in New York. I'm sitting in for Francine Lacroix. Jean-Claude Trichet, the former ECB president, and Daniel Morris of BNP Paribas Asset Management are still with us. Uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, let me come back to you. Um, we were talking before the break about what is happening with the economy, the supply chain shocks that we are going to be experiencing. How quickly do you think um, stressed companies in the eurozone are going to be experiencing problems? How quickly do you think bad loans are going to start to pick up? Well, I think that, uh, of course, nobody knows exactly what uh, is likely to be the dynamic of the, of the uh, phenomenon. But it's clear that it is unfolding and the, the, it would be uh, of a duration which might be much more than what we think uh, or what we thought at the very beginning. Uh, that's the reason why I uh, make uh, myself the point that it is very important that credit remains available. I would say I would make the point also that we were already discussing the use of uh, fiscal weaponry before uh, the coronavirus exploded. And the fiscal weaponry is uh, very, very important. I am happy to see that in the US, the uh, um, uh, House of Representatives has decided to embark on some action precisely to, to deal with the coronavirus. I would say in Europe, it's absolutely necessary also because there are some room for maneuvering on the fiscal side and that they are more important than ever, of course, in the present context of a, a big problem on the demand side. President Trichet. Daniel Morris. Oh, excuse sorry. me. Go ahead. Guy. I'm sorry. Guy, I'm sorry. Continue. Well, let's, let's, break. let's just get uh, Daniel Morris's uh, take on this. Do you think fiscal policy will come quickly enough for companies that are at the bottom end of the triple B range to be able to avoid becoming fallen angels and ending up in high yield. Yeah, well, this is always the dilemma when it comes to, to fiscal stimulus. We can remember back to the global financial crisis and shovel-ready projects, and, you know, we saw $100 billion. I think that was ultimately spent to support the economy, but by the time it actually hits any company or any household, you know, normally it's well after it was actually needed. So it's, it's certainly helpful. It's what should be done. Uh, is it going to be enough in the short term? You know, is it going to arrive soon enough? I think you have reason to be concerned. President Trichet, John Plender has an absolutely outstanding effort in the FT today, uh, talking at corporate debt, as Guy Johnson brings up. Otmar Issing, who you worked with at the European Central Bank, speaks of what everybody knows is the backstory, and that is a global misallocation of capital because of all of these oddities, these disincentives within the yield market. How misallocated are we right now? I certainly share the view that uh, we had accumulated, we had piled up uh, debt outstanding uh, to an extent that has been uh, uh, dangerous. So whatever the trigger, coronavirus or any other trigger, we had a potential problem of dealing with a situation where over-indebtedness is uh, very, very large and uh, has continued after the crisis, after the demand border crisis. So there is undoubtedly an issue there, which would call also, uh, have to say, for a global response, because the phenomenon of over-indebtedness was observed in all continent, all, I would say, constituencies, advanced economy as well as emerging economy. Uh, so that, that's, that's a real, real issue, a real structural issue. But of course, we have to, to live with the situation as it is and certainly to do the best out of the present situation 
which is very, very delicate, obviously. And again, I would say the central bank are pillars of stability, anchors of stability in a world which is extraordinarily volatile, dangerous, unstable. And that's the reason why it seems to me it's more important than ever that the authority of the central bank right. is fully preserved, which is not, not necessarily the case from time to time. Even in the U.S., where when I see some tweets coming from the chief of the executive branch, that seems to me totally inappropriate in terms of preserving the authority right. okay. of the Fed. Okay, well, the economist Donald Trump, I'm sure, is uh, listening to this carefully right now. Jean-Claude Trichet, if we look <laughs> at a Schumpeterian destruction, a creative destruction of this debt that we have created, what is the best outcome for President Trump and other world leaders? How do, how do we get away from, how do we extricate ourselves from this misallocation? Well, again, uh, you, you, have <clears throat> you have to cope with a crisis which is unfolding right now, clearly. And you have a medium-long-term issue of first magnitude. To sum up the situation, I would say at the level of all economies in the world and at the level of the global economy and the international community as a whole, we should give privilege to equity and not as we did until now, to debt. There is a preference for debt over equity, which is generalized that we see in the deficits of the states, in, in, the, de in the public deficits everywhere, that we see also in taxation, which is privileging debt over equity, which is stupid, of course, and extremely dangerous in a long-term perspective. Who can initiate this seismic change from a focus of debt and fixed income instruments over to the risk of equity? I would say the IFIs, the international financial institutions, are key, of course, to uh, have a strong message, a message that would be, I would say, listened to at a global level, and of course, we have to get a consensus amongst the major economies, uh, the European economy, the US, uh, and of course, China and others, to understand that we are not doing any good if we continue to pile up debt, clearly. President Trichet, thank you so much. Jean-Claude Trichet is a former president of the European Central Bank and, of course, of France. I can't convey enough, folks, the tradition at Babson, and there's other universities as well, of accounting as the adult major. It's, it's, you go there, you're serious, and you're yes. serious yep. about it, and you take it. They produced years ago a gentleman, Timothy Ryan. He's a Bruins fan, which helps. And he began, and he did what you do in accounting, which is basic auditing, and has risen to the head of U.S. operation uh, as chairman of PwC. And we are thrilled that the accountant from Babson could join us this morning. Tim Ryan, what will be the accounting ramifications of this virus? How will it first be gleaned among your clients? Yeah, uh, good morning, Tom, and thank you for having me. I think what's really important is we're just beginning to see the ramifications. So companies who have largely reported this year-end's earnings, those are they, those happened, um, they were December 31st year-end earnings. So I think what right. we'll really be looking for is this first, first quarter earnings. But there's no question a number of different sectors are under pressure. So it, it is reasonable to assume that we will see 
some slowdown in our, our clients' results as this virus continues. So, Tim, what are you hearing kind of anecdotally from some of your biggest clients? We saw it, a lot of corporate news out of Silicon Valley in the West Coast today, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, folks stay at home, work at home. So some big decisions are being made affecting a lot of people. What are you hearing from some of your clients? Yeah, so over the last three days, I've talked to several dozen of our clients, and what we're hearing is people first, take care of your people, protect them in health, business continuity planning to make sure critical operations can be performed. And just now we're starting to see focus on uh, cash management, making sure costs are contained, because there is a sense that this could affect operations and, and um, performance over a long period of time. But without a doubt, over the last uh, several weeks, it's been about people first. So, Tim, I, when I think about a, a firm like PwC, I think about all your young uh, auditors and uh, consultants that are spend their whole lives, you know, on planes, going out to see their clients. What are you telling your uh, people right now? Yeah, great question. So what we did, what we've done to all of our people, for all of our people, is to say um, all non-essential travel stops um, immediately. Number two, what we said is travel to any of the restricted areas across the globe had stopped immediately. We're asking our people to leverage our technology that we've invested in heavily over the last several years and work from home when possible. And we're also asking our people to practice just normal, good, healthy practices. If they're not feeling well, uh, don't travel, don't come into the office. Tim, the article of the day was John Plender and the FT. It's a lengthy article, folks, just brilliantly walks through the buildup in corporate debt that's out there. Great quotes, including Otmar Issing, uh, the giant of economics from Germany. And Tim, and there's something that parses right over to PwC and that there's been a massive debt buildup, but it's really not on the back of technology, which has a massive cash buildup. And the implication here is that debt is more focused in traditional American industries. Is PwC seeing that? Yeah, I would say I would say that some I would say that that is very similar to what we're seeing at this point. It is more traditional. We have seen an increase in technology, but not at the same level as you would see some of the traditional areas, Tom. Let me bring up a sensitive question, and, and you know, you're such a straight shooter that I'm sure I'm going to get an honest answer. What is the differential between how any given major accounting consultancy does business in New York or London or Beijing or Shanghai or around the world, Delhi, wherever? Is it a uniform audit process or does it differ? Is it malleable nation to nation? I would say the, the, there's clearly differences nation to nation, but the principles of auditing across the globe are very similar. It's independence, objectivity, and making sure that investor protection comes first. And that that is right. largely consistent across the globe. Now, the standards that are followed different sure. in different, different parts of the world. But as I, I spent half my time outside the U.S., the, the concept of investor protection is something that I do see cut across geographies. I mean, you see this all the time. Of course, we hear it here at Bloomberg Surveillance, yeah. uh, Tim, the idea that, well, the accounting in other places is the same, but you have to live it. A firm like you, have, you have to go in and do this nation to nation. How do you adapt your auditors to that? Yeah, so we, one of the things that we focus an awful lot on is culture and training. And we also, at any given time, have a couple of thousand people who are, who are living in different parts of the world to make sure we, we have a sense of shared values in terms of how we do things. We have very robust kind of quality checks that take place across the globe to make sure the quality is consistent. And frankly, Tom, straight shooting, always looking to improve. Like, we're not perfect, and we're always trying to raise our game. So when we see an opportunity to improve in a different territory, we take 
take those lessons learned and bring them across the globe. And that's a continuous loop that is always happening. So, Tom, I, I, uh, Tim, I know you put out your uh, PwC, your global uh, CEO survey. Uh, I don't see, you know, kind of coronavirus in there or, or these these the yeah. big health issues. But how do you feel like corporate America is kind of prepared for some of these just really one off things that come out of nowhere? Yeah. So just thanks for referring to the survey. We launched it in January in Davos and we ask every year for 23 years straight, what are the top risks in health crises, pandemics? Clearly, we're not, it wasn't in the top 10 in terms of CEO concerns. And I think the coronavirus is a great example of how CEOs have to be ready for anything yeah. right now. I, I do think that in many respects, your best, your best companies have been preparing for something like this for years, meaning, do they see this coming? No. Right, right. We, we have seen a, a good percentage of our clients, not all of them, but we have seen a good percentage of them for the last couple of years preparing for what I'll say, get fixing the roof when the sun is shining. They've got their cost structures in play. Yeah. They leverage more technology. Now, to be frank, some haven't, and their ability to deal with something like right. this is going to be way less equipped than others. Tim Ryan, thank you so much. With PwC US, their chairman, greatly appreciate a snapshot in there out of what corporations in the audit process. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.